Okay, we are back. Uh, we took the night off last night because there was inclement weather. We didn't know if the power was going to stay on or off. Uh, the storm came and then went and then also came back again and then kept going. And things get kind of really weird out here in Texas sometimes with our bad, bad weather. So I just kind of said, let's just not get our mics cut by bad weather. So we just said, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. So we did. So that's what we're doing. We're doing it tomorrow. So I'm going to send out this update. Forever a body. We are live now. Now doing the reading. All right, Colin.com. Here we are. So resuming our chapter work. This is known unknowns for willful blindness. because it timed out while I was busy. All right. Sorry for the delay. Okay, this is chapter 14 of Willful Blindness, how a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the West. No knowns. The Ontario Conservative opposition led by Patrick Brown asked the Ontario Liberal government to hit the pause button on the Toronto casino contracts, but the Liberal government pressed forward with Great Canadian, despite the scandal in British Columbia. Why? Was this another example of willful blindness? Senator Larry Campbell's eyes got big when he saw us approaching with a TV camera. Since the fall of 2017, when I was with the Vancouver Sun... I had repeatedly asked Campbell to comment on his dual role as a Canadian lawmaker and a highly paid board director for Great Canadian Gaming, the operator of River Rock Casino. He wouldn't respond. A year later, I was working for Global News in Ottawa. So I waited for the first Senate session of the year and decided to approach Campbell where he works, Parliament Hill. As Campbell climbed the steep set of stairs to the Senate chamber, Global News cameraman Mike Hazlitt nudged him, nudged me, and we walked quickly towards him. In 2004, Campbell had, as Vancouver mayor, cast a deciding vote, giving Great Canadian Gaming the green light to install hundreds of slot machines at Hastings Racetrack. In 2005, he was made a Liberal senator, and in 2008, he was named to Great Canadian's board. A massive amount of money laundering had occurred since. Based on suspicious transaction records and interviews with GPEB sources, I estimated that as much as $2 billion in suspicious funds could have flowed through BC Lottery Casinos since 2008. Much of this cash was from loan sharks. But the suspicious funds also included special VIP non-cash accounts funded by anonymous bank drafts and electronic transfer from anonymous bank accounts. And BCLC's so-called anti-money laundering VIP accounts were being used almost exclusively by the whale gamblers from China that did business with Richmond Loan Sharks at River Rock Casino. The VIP accounts were supposed to be the lesser of two evils compared to duffel bags of cash. But the Loan Sharks were funding them through banks and dirty currency exchanges, shops, and Richmond, sorry, excuse me, 
So I had shown that BC was a big outlier in Canada for casino money laundering, and River Rock was an outlier in BC. All the evidence from RCMP and GPEV showed River Rock's VIP room was the epicenter, and Campbell was chair of the Great Canadian Gaming's Committee on Corporate Security and Compliance. This meant he was one of those responsible for ensuring that money laundering did not occur at River Rock Casino. I felt he had to answer for himself, so back in 20, October of 2017, I repeatedly tried to get comments from River Rock Casino executives, including CEO Rod Baker and Campbell. A colleague at the Vancouver Sun had given me Campbell's private cell phone number. Campbell is known to be a jovial and charming interview when he's in the mood to talk with reporters. He answered the phone, but he must have expected another reporter. As soon as I identified myself, there was a brief pause, and then I heard, I'm sorry, I'm not in Canada. I can't make out what you're saying. The line went dead. I called back minutes later, but Campbell didn't answer. If not for the fact that this was a Canadian senator, former RCMP anti-drug unit officer, Vancouver mayor, and chief coroner, the phone call would have been comical. But it was Campbell's duty to answer to Canadian citizens. Why did money launderers infiltrate River Rock Casino on his watch? And he was dodging. In September of 2018, now I was in Ottawa with more capacity to question federal politicians. I already knew Canada's money casino, casino money laundering problems went far beyond British Columbia. In May of 2018, my, one of my first stories for Global News probed the awarding of several Toronto area casino contracts to Great Canadian. This was controversial because the Ontario contracts were issued in 2017, while the company's flagship operation, River Rock Casino, was under a money laundering review called by BC Attorney General David Eby. The Ontario Conservative opposition, led by Patrick Brown, asked the Ontario Liberal government to hit the pause button on the Toronto casino contracts, but the Liberal government pressed forward with Great Canadian despite the scandal in British Columbia. Why? Was this another example of willful blindness? It would make another good question for Larry Campbell, a federal Liberal Party appointee. But he didn't just want to meet me, so we waited for him. Campbell reached the top of the stairs and stopped in the Grand Lobby, where, pra where paintings of British royals and eminent legislators are, are fixed to stone walls before towering columns and vaulted arches. He had to sign a document before entering the Senate. As he bent to sign the paper, I held my microphone towards him. Senator Campbell, I'm sorry to bother you at the moment. We're with Global News. You're a director of compliance at Great Canadian Gaming. Can you tell us any comments about the money laundering that is occurring at River Rock Casino? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my god, that sentence. Sorry, that's an editorial trigger for me. I have no idea what you're talking about, Campbell muttered without looking towards the camera. It appeared that his face was turning red. Senator, you deserve, you serve the Canadian people, but as a director for the great Canadian gaming, you serve shareholders. Is there a conflict of interest there? Campbell finished signing his paperwork without answering and walked across the lobby to the guarded Senate chambers while we followed him with the camera rolling. I could ask only one more question before he walked past the guard. Senator, can you tell us how much you earn as a director for Great Canadian Gaming? He didn't respond. On September 18th, Global News published my story. 
BC's River Rock Casino has been called the epicenter of money laundering by international organized crime groups, I wrote. Throughout the troubles, Senator Larry Campbell has collected more than $800,000 in cash compensation and about $2.1 million worth of shares as a board director of the company that owns the casino, Great Canadian Gaming. The story noted that under Canada's laws, senators are permitted to be directors in private corporations and receive compensation. But there was not a deeper was there not a deeper deeper ethical concern, as serious public safety and social issues related to casino money laundering rock BC, and polling numbers show mounting calls for a public inquiry. Could Campbell effectively champion casino reforms that may be called for in BC society? My story asked. Or would he, like many casino industry spokespersons have over the past year, claim that BC casinos are adequately complying with the laws currently in place? Would he champion BC citizens or great Canadian shareholders? He has yet to answer these ethics questions. As former U.S. Defense Secretary Don Rumsfeld once put it, in, an assessing, in assessing a field of knowledge, there are no knowns. These are the things that we have discovered and understand. And there are known unknowns. These are evasive facts that we know are crucial puzzle pieces to complete our intelligence assessment. And so, Senator Campbell's knowledge of compliance concerns at River Rock Casino, a big known unknown, why did Campbell not want to answer my questions? I had to keep digging for evidence. My sources said BC's government held explosive documents pointing to serious integrity concerns inside River Rock. One source pointed to a 2014 Lottery Corp report filed by a former Vancouver police officer with in-depth knowledge of Big Circle Boys networks. A source also said various Lottery Corp records, alleged connections between Lone Shark gangsters, VIP, and high-level staff. For years, I made Freedom of Information Act requests, but it seemed to me that the Lottery Corp was using every trick in the book to to avoid disclosing records that could prove corruption in BC casinos. I kept up the pressure, and in 2020, I requested all BCLC reports, notes, player interviews, or emails from January 1, 2013 through January 1, 2018 related to alleged corruption and direct connections to organized crime involving anyone suspected of being corrupted, bribed, influenced, affiliated to, or facilitating crime connected to BCLC casinos for suspected members of Asian organized crime networks. I finally got a few highly redacted emails back from the Lottery Corp, but there were just enough clues in the records to prove that my information was credible. And the process also confirmed something obvious for me. The only way names implicated in BC casino corruption would come to light was through leaked documents and aggressive investigative journalism. The government would never disclose this damaging information itself. One 2014 email from Lottery Corp spokeswoman Laura Piva Babcock to Lottery Corp CEO Jim Lightbody said, FYI, more outfall from the leaked docs, mainly calling out Cancellor Chang. The internal Lottery Corp email cited a CTV news story about Richard Chang. 
the Burnaby Municipal Politician Investigated by Ross Alderson at River Rock Casino. As a city councilor, Chang is a member of Burnaby's community policing community, and he recently voted in favor of more slot machines at Burnaby's Grand Villa Casino. The Lottery Corps email said, One of Chang's outings to Richmond's River Rock Casino in 2011 caught the attention of the BC Lottery Corporation for what it called suspicious activities. A GPEB investigation found that a casino high roller passed $100,000 in chips to Chang. Sorry, Chang. The story by CTV investigative reporter Mi Jung Lee also cited records that said Chang is believed to be a loan shark and had an extensive history of chip and cash passing and suspicious transactions. Lee's story didn't list one more potential conflict. Chang was in a position at Burnaby City Hall to vote on land development plans for groups that included BC Casino VIPs and RCMP investigation targets. I, and I know these groups were assembling land in downtown Burnaby while Chang was in office. But Richard Ching Chang denied the River Rock Casino load, loan sharking allegations and had since he left BC politics. I could not reach him for comment. Another chain of redacted Lottery Corp documents pointed to corruption concerns involving a high-level staff at River Rock and RCMP investigation targets. In October of 2013, Ross Alderson wrote to a Lottery Corp casino investigator, Steve, can you give me the iTrack number regarding that incident you observed outside River Rock Casino Resort involving redacted information and redacted information? The Lottery Corp investigator emailed back explaining that the staff had discussed a potential corruption investigation and documented their surveillance observations, but an official Lottery Corp incident report had not been created given the sensitivity of the subject matter and the level of staff involved. I called our RCMP contact who was investigating some of these people previously redacted. The Lottery Corp email says, The RCMP team was busy with other files and the file had been put on the back burner. Another email released to me says, A Lottery Corp investigator with special knowledge of the Big Circle Boys got information from the RCMP regarding Redacted and Richard meeting at Redacted. The records suggest corruption involving high-level casino staff, a BC politician, and transnational organized crime. But because of redactions, the records don't have enough information to draw any conclusions. Similarly, I found a lack of crucial personal and corporate identifiers in the biggest corruption allegation. This was the shocking charge made by Fred Pennock's former RCMP Illegal Gaming Unit in 2008, shortly before the unit was disbanded. It referred to a GPEB employee who was allowed a gang associate to buy part of a casino before the employee retired from government and took a job at a casino. One more specific connections to organized crime is, was, through a subject connected to Asian organized crime who was allowed to buy into a casino, the RCMP report said. Open source information indicates that he is now dead, but his casino business association have also also have organized crime connections. So, which BC connection or sorry, 
BC Casino is referred to. Who is the former government employee? And which BC Casino company hired them? Who is the Asian organized crime figure allowed to buy into a casino? And who are his casino business associates? I asked Great, Great Canadian Gaming if River Rock could be the casino referred to in the RCMP's allegation. We have no knowledge of the allegation you've suggested, and we would propose that you pursue your inquiry of this matter with those that generated the report you were citing from. The company responded. The RCMP would also not comment. Is it possible that Senator Larry Campbell, who has held a great Canadian gaming board seat since 2008, could shed any more light on these questions? He, would, he won't respond. So we don't know. Here is a huge no-known. There is already an audit suggesting systemic compliance concerns under Campbell's watch. The audit obtained from GPEB in my 2017 Freedom of Information request said from January 1, 2015 to December 31st of 2015, several Vancouver area casinos accepted $6.7 million in banned cash. River Rock Casinos accounted for the $5.37 million of that total. The GPEB review found that sites knowingly accepted cash that they acknowledged was obtained from questionable sources, industry indicators of suspicious activity were present in all incidents which the cage accepted cash, and about $4 million of this cash was attributed to Paul King Jin in 2015. GPEB records showed while Jin was banned and while the e-pirate probe continued. Any way you look at it, this finding seems damning. When I approached Senator Larry Campbell on Parliament Hill, this was the evidence that supported my questions, but the GPEB audit found something that, for me, was even more intriguing. It suggested refining. The money laundering process narcos used to exchange 20s for 100 and reduce the volume of their warehouse piles of cash could potentially be occurring systematically inside River Rock Casino. The GPEB audit said that the Lottery Corp's anti-money laundering guidance advises that to prevent patron from refining bills for the purpose of money laundering, BC casinos should pay gamblers out in the same denomination of currency that they use to buy chips. But River Rock Casino management held that the view of the patrons that buy in with small denominations Denomination bills can be paid out with big denomination bills. So, in order to determine whether refining, refining was occurring at River Rock, GPEB auditors devised an elegant accounting analysis. They looked at funds flowing between the casino VIP room and the casino vault. This is why I think the audit is so important. GPEB data showed me that the River Rock VIP room was both the major revenue generator for BC Lottery Corp casinos and also the epicenter of money laundering via several dozen whale gamblers. So by isolating the River Rock VIP room, it seems GPEB was examining the precise section of toxic financial plumbing most compromised by BC's dirty money problem. The auditors looked at cash deposited by VIPs from July 1st of 2015 to December 31st of 2015. Larry Campbell was elevated to chair of Great Canadian
Canadian's Compliance Board in June of 2015, meaning he was responsible for overseeing the plumbing examined by GPEB. The auditors found that VIPs used $40 million worth of $20 bills to buy chips in just six months. And this is the stunner. GPEB says that 99% of these 20s were sent directly from River Rock VIP cashier windows to the casino's vault. In other words, the 20s were not currency that would be returned to the VIPs. They were only good for buying chips in this microeconomic corner of Canada's economy, the VIP room where Chinese nationals bet up to $100,000 per hand on Baccarat. Think about it. The casino's financial plumbing was designed to take the 20s deposited by VIPs out of play automatically and shuttle these bills down to the casino vault. And GPB believed almost all of these 20s came from a Richmond loan shark. So just like Muriel Labine had believed when she worked in the company's Richmond casino in the 1990s. And GPB auditors found that another $90 million worth of $100 bills was transferred up from River Rock Casino Vault to the River Rock VIP room cashiers. The auditors also found that VIPs deposited $50 million worth of $100 bills to River Rock Casino VIP cash cages to buy playing chips. But almost all of these $100 bills stayed in circulation in the VIP room. These $100 bills were not sent down to the casino vault. Recall the U.S. hedge fund manager John Tudor Jones' famous quote, The whole world is simply nothing more than a flowchart for capital. And now apply that wisdom to a flowchart of the River Rock VIP room. What the auditors established is that $20 bills came into the VIP room and then immediately vanished to the casino vault. And then hundreds came up from the casino vault for circulation in the VIP room. And then the hundreds that came into the casino with the VIPs stayed in circulation. They did not get vacuumed down to the casino vault. As I wrote for the Vancouver Sun, this suggests that $20 bills not wanted by VIP players at River Rock were taken out of circulation at the casino. And $100 bills that were desired by gamblers were kept in play. And the auditors concluded, Our analysis found that nearly all patrons that bought with 20s were not paid out in this denomination. And it is reasonable to conclude that refining is occurring through the high limit cages at River Rock Casino. The records show that Great Canadian Gaming and the Lottery Corp questioned the audit findings, and Great Canadian repeatedly stated to me in emails that the company strictly adheres to Canada's anti-money laundering regulations. But the power of this particular allegation can't be overstated. The GPEB audit painted a hell of a picture. And the picture's title could have been, oh, something like money laundering by design. Sometimes a visual metaphor helps. Imagine the VIP room is literally a coin laundry. The patrons come to this laundromat because they only like to wear bright white t-shirts. And the $100 bills are like white t-shirts. Patrons come in carrying heavy sacks of mud splattered shirts, and the $20 bills are like muddy shirts. The VIP drops off, drop off their muddy shirts, and then they leave with bright white shirts. The coin laundromat exists to turn the muddy shirts into white shirts, and it is there to turn 20s into 100s. 
And this next part of the picture is my imaginary supposition. But it outlines a section of plumbing that needs to be examined. I can visualize the muddy shirts being taken down to a big concrete room in the laundromat basement. They're packed into armored vans and delivered to a bigger concrete room, the big five Canadian banks. The armored vans load up with crisp white shirts and then drive back to the coin laundromat. The spotless shirts are delivered to the basement vault and then carted upstairs. And they are handed to the patrons in the VIP room. And everyone is happy and Canada's economy is growing, but at what cost? And who benefited most directly? Who would design such a system? I eventually learned that Asian organized crime's interest in buying into BC casinos wasn't limited to the case cited in 2008 by Fred Pinnock's former RCMP illegal gaming unit, or the 1990s casino gate scandal when Kwok Chung Tam may have tried to influence a casino license application, according to Canadian court files. Because in 2015, Stone Lee, the Lottery Corp investigator, reviewed video footage showing Paul King Jin talking with employees of Starlight Casino in New Westminster. The employees told Lee that Jin was asking about an investment proposal for the casino's owner, Gateway. A lawyer for the Starlight Casino later claimed the meeting was actually about real estate development near the casino. Nothing to do with the VIP room investments. So what really transpired? A massive known unknown. Dot, dot, dot. Another known unknown is the Ontario casino contracts. Using Freedom of Information Law, I found that Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, AGCO investigators opened an investigation after Ontario's government awarded Great Canadian gaming contracts, including a major gaming expansion at Toronto's Woodbine Casino. These investigators were specifically interested in alleged money laundering transaction in River Rock Casino's VIP room in fall of 2017, involving a VIP host that I had exposed in reports for the Vancouver Sun. Ontario Provincial Police Detective Constable Dan McDonald had emailed to GBEB and said that he had to liaise with RCMP concerning the River Rock Casino and any other related investigation. As you likely know, Great Canadian Gaming has bought a few casinos here in Ontario now I'm supposed to find out what is going on in BC. McDonald wrote to Kenneth Ackles of BC's anti-gang and anti-illegal gaming unit. So Ontario's casino regulator was monitoring the investigations in BC in connection to Great Canadian Gaming's new casino contracts. Why did the Ontario Liberal government then allow the contracts to proceed? And why? In late 2017, did the Ontario Progressive Conservative PC party stop urging the provincial government to freeze the deals? As it reported for Global News, under former PC leader Patrick Brown, the party had slammed the Liberals in the legislature. I obtained party emails that showed former PC party president Rick Dijkstra sent out emails titled Corrupt Gaming Strategy, inciting the money laundering probe in BC. Shouldn't we be going after these guys in the house? Dixra wrote to Patrick Brown. We show their process is corrupt and we can call their whole strategy into question. 
I just spoke with Duncan Brown, a former head of the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation. He said based on this, he would toss Great Canadian Gaming. My investigation for Global News showed that a Toronto hedge fund with a massive bet on Great Canadian Gaming had repeatedly lobbied the PCs to hit the mute button on their criticism. The hedge fund, Bloomberg Sen, was powerfully connected and influential, to say the least. Its board of directors included significant donors to both the Ontario Liberal and PC parties. Carolyn Mulroney, the daughter of former Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, was vice president of Bloomberg Sen before she stepped outside to run for the PCs in 2018. Bloomberg said had at least 8 million shares invested in Great Canadian Gaming when it stepped up its lobbying of the PC party in December of 2018. At 8.14 a.m. on December 20th, the party campaign chair, Walid Suleiman, received a minimalist email from Bloomberg Sen founder Sanjay Sen. The subject line, PC still talking about Great Canadian, pointed to behind-the-scenes discussions between Hedge Fund and the party. Mail included a link to December 19th Globe and Mail story, which quoted the B- the PC finance critic Vic Fideli, and said despite ongoing probes in BC and Ontario, the Great Canadian had been awarded yet another bundle of Ontario contracts, this for several casinos west of Toronto. On December 20th, Solomon forwarded the Bloomberg sent email to then PC leader Patrick Brown. So I'm continuing to get lobbied on this, but have actually changed my view, Solomon wrote. I think we should attack this. I got some information yesterday, which is very disturbing. Anyhow, long and short of it is I'm not in favor of us pulling back. Vic Fidelity. I'm increasingly think, thinking there is something bad here, but the PCs did not continue to attack the great Canadian gaming contracts under former leader Patrick Brown or new leader, Doug Ford, who was elected premier in June of 2018. Carolyn Mulroney also won a seat for the party and was named Attorney General. And as Great Canadian Gaming stock price surged in late 2017 and early 2018, boosted by optimism over the company's new Ontario contracts, (coughs) including the expansion of Toronto's Woodbine Casino, as of May of 2018, Bloomberg Sen's share were worth about $420 million? Did Ontario government turn a blind eye to evidence of toxicity in Great Canadian Gaming's Macau VIP money machine that would later come out in the Cullen Commission records? Consider this data point. With my Global News Investigation Unit colleagues Brian Hill and Andrew Russell in January of 2020, I reported on a stunning jump in suspicious cash investigations in Ontario casinos in 2018. The number of potential money laundering investigations more than doubled from 945 in 2017 to 2,226 in 2018, and those statistics continue to trend higher in 2019, according to statistics obtained from Freedom of Information from Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP. Chief Chief Bill Price of the OPP told us that 140% increase in his casino's investigation unit's suspicious transaction investigations was due, 
in part to more gambling in the Toronto region and the OPP's increased security of that gambling. If you turn a slot facility into a full-blown casino with table games, there are larger transactions that automatically occur that should generate suspicious transactional reports, Price said. Would buying casino itself went from a slot facility to a full-blown casino, and that changes the dynamics. Our data showed that in 2017, there were eight suspicious transactions investigation recorded by the OPP at Woodbine. And in 2018, after Great Canadian's new contract and expanded gambling operations, there were 58. And from January to August 1, 2019, there were 76 suspicious transactions investigations logged by OPP investigators working at the Woodbine Casino. We asked Great Canadian to respond to the sharp increase in suspicious actions investigations. Fundamentally, our role is to identify and report unusual and large cash transactions, the company said in a statement. In undertaking this role in Ontario, our obligation is to adhere to all mandated rules and regulations and even exceed those requirements to ensure a robust anti-money laundering regime is followed. But Chief Superintendent Bill Price told us the same method of money laundering seen in BC, bulk cash refining, is occurring in Ontario casinos. A very basic example of currency refining is you walk into the casino with $10,000. Very minimal gameplay. You go to the cashier's cage and cash out with $9,000. You've got a casino receipt and you've basically laundered $9,000. And Calvin Krusty, who retired from the RCMP in 2019, told us the mainland China narcos had adjusted after BC casinos cracked down on dirty money. The criminal networks involved have, haven't been touched, and they are still selling your drugs and making their money. He said, money laundering is like a product of their crime, just like dead kids and corrupt politicians. So that dirty money will find the cracks. And we heard the same thing from Canada's Criminal Intelligence Service. In 2019, the RCMP had identified a new international money laundering service based in Ontario and BC that used casinos, real estate, underground banks, shell companies, trade-based money laundering, and straw buyers. Police believe this elite professional laundering service was washing upwards of hundreds of millions each year. To me, it looked like the Ontario BC money laundering cartel matched the silver underground bank's modus operandi precisely. Dot dot dot. I had started my journey into transnational underground banking without any understanding of how it worked. The concept of an ancient system using credits and debits backed by pools of drug cash worldwide had never crossed my mind when I began evaluating Vancouver's explosive real estate prices. For me, the connection between real estate and casino money laundering wasn't even a known unknown back in 2013. But in June 2020, I got the confirmation of what my pattern recognition had been telling me since 2015. By looking at real estate developers and crowdfunders from mainland China, I had stumbled across the casino whales and loan sharks that defined the Vancouver model. A September 16, 2015 email from Lottery Corp anti-money laundering investigator Daryl Tottenham to Ross Alderson was CC'd to Alderson's boss Brad Desmarais. The email included a federal court judgment, Lau versus Canada's Minister of Public Safety. 
and it referred to my September 14th story, Vancouver Province story, inside the world of BC's top realtor. Excellent article, got a little bit of everything going on in this story, Tottenham's email said. Just a FYI, a few of the main players in this story are redacted. I had named a number of Julia Lau's real estate clients and crowdfunding associates. This redacted Lottery Corp record indicated the people I had named were VIPs or loan sharks. While much of Tottenham's email is redacted by Lottery Corp, there is enough content to prove that Lau and her network were red flagged by casino investigators. And the email showed that Lottery Corp brass was warned in 2015 that this prolific mainland China real estate investor network was involved in suspicious casino transactions. So the main subject of the article, Julia Lau, redacted, the email says, however, the friend she got some of the money is from is redacted. Also, I tracked is redacted. Here's another good one, redacted. One other player in this story, which is a player with redacted and is redacted. In my province story, I had reported on Canada's seizure of $133,000 cash from Julia Lau and her contracted agent, Jason Edward Lee, because the source of the funds could not be identified. The friend referred to in my story and Tottenham's email was Meilin Chen, the former Guangdong duck farmer who had rapidly amassed a fortune in factories and real estate development in southern China before moving to Vancouver and quickly buying some of the most expensive mansions in the city and then jumping into crowdfunding development and land assembly with Julia Lau and Kevin Soon. In the Lau versus Public Safety Minister case attachment, there are indications that Tottenham was focused on Meilin Chen. I have not been able to reach Meilin Chen for comment through his Vancouver development companies, including, including Global Dingy. Mr. Chen remains an enigma as his real estate development footprint grows in Vancouver. He's developing towers across the city and owns a hotel in downtown Vancouver. Even his son, Ding Chen, made headlines in the South China Morning Post after the young man's Instagram feed revealed he had used Meilin Chen's credit card to buy 5 million custom Bugatti Chiron. A $5 million custom Bugatti Chiron. It was a nice addition to the Chen family transportation hangar in Canada, which included a 50 million bombardier Challenger jet bearing Ding's name painted in gold. So what? Is there any concrete reason to question Malin Chen's riches and associations in Richmond? Yes, there is. On September 14th of 2017, a man parked a silver Mercedes-Benz SUV outside River Rock Casino and walked inside with a gray bag containing $200,000 in cash. He was met by Lisa Gao, a River Rock Casino VIP program manager, and she escorted him to a private cash cage. They ducked inside and he placed four large bundles of cash on the counter. They were bricks of $100 bills wrapped in elastic bands. This is the way that criminal proceeds are packaged. Banks don't issue 200000 in elastic bands. The electronic money counter whirred the bills through and registered the total $2,100 bills. The man walked out to a backrat table, and Lisa Gao brought him a purple velvet River Rock Casino pouch holding... 
40 casino chips. Each chip was worth $5,000. And the man walked out of the casino with $200,000 worth of River Rock chips without playing a hand. He was a straw buyer for Malin Chen, and Chen was already banned from River Rock Casino. This transaction broke Canada's anti-money laundering law, but it wasn't that simple. An investigation found Chen planned to distribute these casino chips to several visitors from China. Why? And why did a high-level River Rock Casino employee facilitate this money laundering transaction for a banned VIP? The Gaming Enforcement Branch investigated and deregistered Gao, but BC's government took no action against Great Canadian Gaming for the serious integrity breach. The money laundering transaction was reported to the RCMP's Criminal Intelligence Service for informational purposes only. There are so many unknowns surrounding the Malin Chen and Lisa Gao case. But here's a fact we know. This all happened on Senator Larry Campbell's watch. Dot, dot, dot. Our Global News National Investigations Team met in July of 2019. Canada's public health agency had to put out brutal news statistics. Opioid overdoses had killed 10,300 Canadians from January of 2016 through September of 2018. There were almost 4,000 deaths in 2018 alone. Most of the fentanyl overdoses were in BC, Alberta, and Ontario. But Vancouver's downtown Eastside was the epicenter of this national tragedy, and for the first time in modern history, BC's life expectancy was dropping due to fentanyl overdoses. My colleague, Stuart Bell, asked a simple question. Who is getting rich selling the fentanyl that's killing Canadians? I said I thought I would answer the question. Lots of criminals across Canada were selling fentanyl. The vast majority of them were coming in from mainland China, and many shipments arrived in small postal packages. But according to my sources in BC, at the very top of North America's fentanyl trade were the same people laundering massive piles of cash in BC casinos. It was the network orbiting the big circle boys, the same loose coalition of uber criminals that had been running heroin loads into Vancouver ports since Expo of 86. And they didn't mess around with Canada Post. They were shipping mountains of fentanyl and methamphetamine precursors into Vancouver. So my sources were saying, if you want to understand fentanyl deaths in North America, visualize a heat map of factories surrounding cities like Wuhan and Guangzhou, and then imagine a multitude of red bands flowing from southern China and landing across the Americas, sort of like one of those telecommunications network maps, the tiny bands landing across North America. And the giant red bands are hitting ports in British Columbia and Mexico. This represents the routes and relative volumes of fentanyl. I told her team about the criminal intelligence files that I had been collecting since 2017. They pointed to the mainland China industrialists connected to Paul King Jin. Jin was big. He was a river rock whale. But his friends from China made him look like a minnow. James Armstrong, managing editor of our national news team, asked me, to, asked me, Stu Bell, and our colleague Andrew Russell to work on Bell's question. 
The, ob the objective was to identify the kingpins making a killing on fentanyl. Now, I had a chance to dig deeper into the records that Ross Alderson had entrusted to me in September of 2017. These documents explain what Alderson did in late summer 2015 after Calvin Krusty dropped the silver and underground bank bombshell on him. Alderson's team mined Lottery Corp databases for surveillance and suspicious transaction records and combined the information with RCMP organized crime intelligence to draw a circle around the most toxic VIP gamblers active at River Rock Casino. The list included 36 River Rock whales definitively connected to Jin's cash deliveries. Alderson's report said that RCMP suspected Jin's cash supply to the River Rock VIPs was related to transnational drug trafficking. Wow. And RCMP executed warrants against Jin and his associates in October 2015 on reasonable grounds. They were importing and trafficking narcotics, running illegal casinos and laundering money in legal and illegal casinos. So the intelligence I had... Documents naming the Chinese industrialist in Jin's River Rock VIP network was extremely sensitive and confidential. But the depth of, depth of rot in BC's economy would never have been exposed if Alderson didn't share these records with me. When he argues that he changed the history of BC casinos, this is what he means. He gave me the key to exposing the Vancouver model. I took the 36 Jin VIP names and ran their IDs through BC land title and Supreme Court databases. I was looking for land ownership patterns, civil forfeiture cases, and disputes between investigators. When flags came back connecting whale gamblers to various shell corporations, I could identify company directors and lending agreements. I could tie in luxury auto leases criminal record searches, associations with real estate lawyers, and the structure of land assembly and condo development deals. For example, by matching a Burnaby address used to lease a 2018 BMW X-Drive and obtaining banking records, I was able to establish that a BC Lottery Corp casino employee was the director of a shell company used to launder proceeds from a Richmond illegal casino allegedly run by the Big Circle Boys and Paul King Jin and Lap San Peter San, Peter Pang, sorry. In simple terms, by cross-referencing open source records with highly confidential Lottery Corp records, I could make groundbreaking conclusions. I found many of the mainland China whale gamblers who took massive cash deliveries from Jin and committed dozens of suspicious transactions at River Rock Casino also had big land holdings in British Columbia. And they were also receiving strange, gigantic, short-term real estate loans from Paul Jin and his associates. It took a while to figure out the purpose of these loans because the transactions are complex and meant to confuse. Basically, the borrowers and lenders were colluding to buy Vancouver mansions like they bought casino chips. Sometimes the loan sharks really acted like loan sharks. They gave $500,000 cash loan to you. You offered your home as collateral and in a promissory note. And you paid the gangsters back in China or gave them bank drafts or checks in Canada. If you didn't pay, it got violent. 
but often the loan sharks and his borrowers were in the same gang. They used straw buyers and straw sellers to manipulate home sale prices and launder money. And after the lenders and borrowers conspired to launder drug cash into one mansion, the homeowner would take out more and more private lender cash against the home from the same network of loan sharks. In this way, the gangsters could buy more homes in Vancouver. And they added value, building or renovating mansions and paying contractors drug cash under the table and flipped homes to bank the proceeds. The lenders and the borrowers and contractors were all parts of the fentanyl trafficking system, looping money repetitively between Vancouver and mainland China through underground financial plumbing. They were so brazen that they used BC courts to make real estate money laundering look like legitimate civil law disputes. And some of the BC Supreme Court cases explicitly drew links between BC casinos, Macau casinos, prostitution, and enormous pools of real estate wealth in mainland China. In order to expose the dark matter core of Vancouver's exploding real estate prices, one BC Supreme Court file provided me a gold line of documents. The case involved a man named Jia Gui Gao. Gao was on Ross Alderson's list of 36 River Rock VIPs. He had 28 suspicious transactions at River Rock Casino. My criminal intelligence source indicated Gao was a police official in mainland China. Court files said he had tremendous real estate wealth in China. And he was named in, on RCMP investigation documents that detailed a massive surveillance operation into a cartel allegedly involving NBC money laundering, human trafficking, weapons trafficking, and a big-name hunting junket. Whew. A Canadian banking source also confirmed for me the primary suspects were making suspicious transnational wire transfers through registered real estate and weapons businesses in Richmond. Jia Guigao was named as Suspect 19 in the RCMP investigation hierarchy, and Jin was called Suspect 22. BC Supreme Court records told me Jia Guigao had owned at least five mansions in Vancouver. He had sold for $48 million. In the hills of West Vancouver, one of his mansions vividly illustrated the pathology causing Vancouver's overdose crisis. Gao had taken out $28 million in loans against the property since 2015 to fund Vancouver real estate development. One of the loans was from Jen was worth like $8 million, court filings said. In a supposed dispute over repayment terms, Jen's claim alleged he had advanced monies to Gao for real estate development. However, Gao spent the money lent to him on gambling and women. Court files shows that there were many other BC and Alberta loan sharks feeding off of the West Vancouver property. One was WZ on Gia Guigo's Gao, sorry, real estate holdings. He's a big circle boy, banned from Lottery Corp casinos. In 2016, WZ was dinged by Vancouver police in a fentanyl trafficking investigation when cops caught him. 
in a Richmond parking lot as he was unloading a suitcase with $513,000 worth of cash from his trunk of, of a white Range Rover. His partner, YZ, another loan shark with $5.3 million in mortgages on Gia Guigao's properties, was taken down in the same fentanyl trafficking investigation. And MH, named as Paul King Jen's associate in lottery court ban documents, also had $3.2 million in real estate loans on G. Guigao's Vancouver properties. They just walked away from this cash like it was nothing, said a senior BC police source about the fentanyl cash forfeiture case. They said, okay, we'll just take our golf clubs. According to this source, there was a total continuity between the Big Circle Boys' heroin kingpins who infiltrated Canada in the 1980s and the present-day China fentanyl and methamphetamine cartels, including the narco-billionaires in Asia with Canadian citizenship, like Chi Lopsi. These narcos don't always identify as Big Circle Boys, but they're all part of the same network, and the drug routes and money laundering methods haven't changed. It has always been the same people involved, and unfortunately, the longer they do it, the more legitimate they look, the source said. What they do is buy these teardowns, and then they do renovations and build mansions. I know one case, a mainland China heroin kingpin, laundered eight of these homes in Vancouver himself. I found all kinds of BC Supreme Court cases and land title records, like the fentanyl cash seizure case, cementing the connection between the drug trafficking, drug lab houses, drug cash seizures, casino loan sharks, and Vancouver mansion money laundering. In one case, BC land title showed me that cartel suspect number one, a shipbuilder in China, had built a number of mega mansions and resort properties across Richmond and Vancouver. He was ID'd as Jin's loan sharking associate on a lottery court ban and also one of the 36 Jin VIPs. And one more crucial case allowed me to connect the dots between illegal casinos in Richmond and Vancouver real estate lending. The court filing said Paul Jin had loaned a mainland China hotel tycoon $500,000 to buy to build a home in South Vancouver. The borrower and his Vancouver address were connected to a shell company called the Vancouver International Chinese Association. This was the entity that leased a sprawling mansion on Richmond farmland to start up as an underground casino. The 4.9 million mansion at 8880 Sideway Road was bought on paper by a Markham woman related to Peter Lapsang Pan, Pang, sorry, police said. The RCMP said the aptly named Mr. Pang and his friends ran the casino and beat loan sharking this victims with metal bars, among other blood-soaked crimes. <coughs> the Lottery Corp intelligence team told me the casino was a big circle boys venture, and this was the property that, for me, offered clues of leaked police intelligence. The mansion was bought in October 2015. This was days after the RCMP raided Paul Jin's farmland hacienda in the other corner of Richmond only to find that the sophisticated illegal casino abandoned with the RCMP's warrant date circled on a wall calendar. I sometimes tell people 
that when I'm sorting these networks out, it's like building an FBI target wall in my mind. You start with a pencil and a paper and draw the connections between the players, their businesses, their shell companies, their real estate, their family members, their political donations and affiliations, and their criminal and civil forfeiture cases. You have big trans transactions on a timeline. You look at cause and effect. You have the biggest fish at the top of the map and the network extends downward. It's the people at the bottom more likely to get their hands dirty and the people up top more likely to look legitimate. My FBI wall had Big Circle Boys loan sharks, River Rock VIPs, Chinese industrialists, police, military and communist party officials, legal casinos, illegal casinos, BC government casino staff connected to Big Circle Boy casinos. I had fentanyl and ecstasy and methamphetamine trackers. A gangster associate of Paul Jen was caught in the act of delivering pails of fentanyl precursors to labs in Richmond and Burnaby. I had cash houses and hundreds of bank accounts in China. Fentanyl traffickers caught in trafficking guns that they thought straw purchase from River Rock whale gamblers. I had the Megalodon of organized crime in Canada, the Big Circle Boys. Multiple sources with decades of police experiences told me they were the fentanyl kingpins responsible for the warlike opioid deaths totals in Canada, but I needed a bigger data set. How much fentanyl could they be shipping into Canada? And how much money was this network laundering in Vancouver real estate? After a few months working on the file, I got lucky. Dot, dot, dot. The secret police intelligence study was stunning. Its methodology was elegant and robust. And its findings were explosive. The RCMP knew anecdotally that gangs directed from mainland China dominated Vancouver's luxury real estate market. During the e-pirate investigation, police analysts began to understand the sheer scale of the narco proceeds looping between Vancouver and China, but they needed hard data. How could they ask their political masters in Ottawa for more resources to fight money laundering if they couldn't esti estimate the size of the problem? The researchers suspected significant money laundering was pouring into Vancouver homes in the one to three million dollar range, but they didn't have time or resources to study over 20,000 real estate transactions per year. So they focused on just the high end. They picked one year, 2016, and they examined every Vancouver area real estate purchase that that year valued between three million and 35 million. Now they had a database of about 1,200 property transactions. They had the names of the buyers and their methods of financing. RCMP researchers cross-referenced these property documents with databases of criminal records and confidential police intelligence regarding ongoing investigations and networks of suspected criminals. And the results that came back were a blistering indictment of BC's economy. More than 10% of the property sales priced over $3 million in 2016 were tied to buyers with criminal records, and 95% of those transactions were believed to 
by police intelligence to be linked to mainland China crime networks. Many of these purchases were cash. Often the homes were owned in the names of wives and children. The study concluded that more than one billion worth of high-end Vancouver area property transactions in 2016 were linked to Chinese organized crime. It was a mind-blowing finding. It was a lot more than the tip of the iceberg, but it also suggested that much more money laundering throughout the system. Remember, the RCMP could only afford to study the high-end. They were just looking at mansions, but anecdotally, huge money laundering is happening in the sub-3 million price range, especially in Vancouver condo units pre-sold and flipped like pancakes offshore. And consider this. Of the 14 high-level threat organized crime groups in Canada, according to Canadian Police Intelligence, there are 10 in BC. And that includes three cartels offering transnational money laundering services. That is, more elite organized crime and money laundering cartels, including Mexican and Middle East crime syndicates, uh, than any other Canadian province. And to add to that list, the Hells Angels and violent BC dial-a-doper games like the Red Scorpions. All of them were into laundering significant criminal funds into homes valued under $3 million. But the $1 billion in laundered mansion, mansions was a conclusive result. And yet, my sources said the RCMP had no resources to investigate this money laundering criminally. It was just police intelligence. And RCMP officers were not happy having their hands tied due to lack of funding. That is why I believe I was given access to study findings and the secure and confidential transfer of information. And so, for my Vancouver model investigations, the secret police study findings became a known known that would help alter BC's history. In order to dig into the study's implication, I obtained a list of the key properties tied to the core of the Casino Whale Network. These were the properties my sources believed were most important for Canadians to read about. They said that the mansions were bought with proceeds from fentanyl, methamphetamine, and cocaine sales, prostitution, extortion, illegal casinos, and financial fraud. One of the properties on the list, a $22 million home in Shaughnessy, was owned by Gia Guigal, the Macau gambler, River Rock VIP, and Suspect 19 on the RCMP's Casino Junket Cartel Hierarchy Chart. Property records show that Gal bought this mansion on the Matthews on Matthews Avenue for just $7.5 million in 2011, but after Gal and the network of loan sharks started to run much, multiple cash loans through the asset, the home was eventually sold in 2016 for $22 million. An obscene $14 million price gain. For me, the price action had broader implications. Some real estate experts told me hot money laundered through a few homes on high-end high Vancouver block and ripple through the whole market, helping to spark speculative frenzy and pushing the benchmark prices for the Vancouver region higher. Another of the secret police study homes was a $17 million mansion in Shaughnessy. According to study findings, the owner was involved in fentanyl importing and exporting. 
with the network of names attached to, to this property, I can do my own international corporate searches and profile the owners. Just a moment. Property and lending documents show the owner's family hold at least nine Vancouver area homes worth over $60 million, in addition to assembling hundreds of acres of residential land in Metro Vancouver since 2014 and also proposing to develop a Vancouver luxury condo tower, we reported in Global News and our November 2018 investigative series Fentanyl, Making a Killing. The family were members of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. They were also proposing to develop a residential village in Metro Vancouver. I found the family were connected to Chinese industries, at least on paper, and large-scale construction in Guangdong and Hainan. Their corporations were a spiderweb of offshore bankings with Panama Papers and Hong Kong stock market connections. They were patriotic also. A profile of one of the family's Lamborghini-driving scions, a BC student, said the patriarch devoted his international ventures to the motherland. So, with this method, investigating owners of study properties and interviewing sources with knowledge of e-pirate investigation, I was able to profile the real estate money laundering network and detail its motor operandi. At the center of the money laundering ring is a powerful China-based gang called the Big Circle Boys. It is top-level kingpins for the international drug traffickers who are profiting most from Canada's deadly fentanyl crisis. We reported fentanyl making a killing. The crime network, according to police intelligence sources, is a fluid coalition of hundreds of wealthy criminals in Metro Vancouver, including gangsters, industrialists, financial fugitives, and corrupt officials from China. The common link among them is an underground banking scheme in which Chinese VIP gamblers and gangster associates secretly transfer money between China and Richmond, B.C. in order to fund fentanyl imports and traffic to and in Canada. But how much fentanyl was the casino narco cartel running into Richmond ports and warehouses? I needed a big case to understand the scale. So sources pointed me to several related civil forfeiture cases that tied Chinese cartels to the largest known seizure of fentanyl and methamphetamine precursors in Canadian history. Looming behind the purchase of 880 Sidaway Road, a palatial red and gray building guarded by black iron gates and ornamental golden lions, was an alleged network of narcos that police would eventually link to an 85-ton shipment of precursors for drugs, including fentanyl. We reported in Fentanyl Making a Healing. The civil forfeiture cases described how police raided a chemical research company in Richmond on November 23rd of 2016, taking down a Canadian businessman allegedly used by the Chinese cartel. Two days later, police caught another man, Paul King Jen's alleged associate, making runs between the labs. On November 25th of 2016, officers stopped GW as he loaded buckets into his Nissan Pathfinder. They arrested him and searched the vehicle, seizing a number of drums containing NPP, a fentanyl precursor produced in China, I reported for Global News. The forfeiture claim didn't exactly say how much NPP was seized, and RCMP search warrants have been sealed by the courts. 
but for comparison, according to an unrelated 2017 seizure case in Massachusetts, several containers of NPP weighing 50 kilograms could produce as many as 19 million fentanyl pills. And according to the DEA, the pills could be worth a U.S. $570 million on the street. So it is perhaps reasonable to believe that GW was caught with a similar amount of NPP in one single bust. But the Canadian businessman, allegedly working with the Chinese cartel, had received 85 tons of precursors from 2014 to 2016, according to the RCMP. So again, the court records are sealed, so it's impossible to calculate the blend of precursors involved in the seizure, and so I can't really conclude how many fentanyl and methamphetamine pills this mountain of precursors could have pressed in Canada. But sources with knowledge told me it is safe to say that the amount of toxic pills produced had tremendous impact on Canadian society. And not only Canada, we are talking about shipping containers of pills worth more than hundreds of millions on the streets. Profits to the Chinese transnational cartel are in the order of billions. And this cartel is importing precursors from China and exporting pills from Richmond and Markham to countries including Japan, Australia, and the United States. So this brings up a point that Senator Vernon White, a former Canadian police chief, made to me. He sits on Canada's Parliamentary National Security and Intelligence Committee, which makes his observation even more significant for me. He said China's state-controlled fentanyl-producing factories could be shut down if Beijing wanted to act, and Canada could be demanding that China stop the flow or face trade sanctions. I've been in policing 33 years, and I have never seen anything with the profitability that fentanyl has, White said. This is a security threat. If terrorists were killing five to 6,000 people per year, we would do something about it. My sources in national security and intelligence communities said that the same thing. If China wanted to stop fentanyl from flooding the West, it could. So for me, this raised a lot of new questions. People in civilian, police, and military intelligence were starting to wonder if China's fentanyl represented hostile state activity. Why were the big circle boys untouchable in China? Why were they unable to ship deadly toxic opioids worldwide? So I went back to my sources who understood both the RCMP money laundering study and the big circle boys structure. They told me the Chinese narcos controlled chemical factories and customs with protection from the elite Chinese Communist Party officials. There are so many players we have identified in BC, an international policing expert told me. But this is all directed from inside China. At the very top, they are insulated. It's government officials. And there was a lot going on in our fentanyl kingpin series. My reporting suggests that corruption in China was responsible for Vancouver's housing affordability and fentanyl overdose crises. Of course, there are factors. Canadian banks and casinos and regulators are implicated. Real estate speculation is a widespread lifestyle in Vancouver with many beneficiaries. But my research shows transnational organized crime directed from China is a driving force, and it's driving home prices higher. 
The police study findings come amid Metro Vancouver's housing affordability crisis in which middle-class families have been priced out of the city. I wrote for Global News citing the experiences of Andy Yan, a pioneering researcher of offshore money in Vancouver real estate. Some analysts believe a flood of money from China in recent years forced Metro Vancouver home prices to disconnect from the region's median household wage of $72,000, which ranks among the lowest for Canadian cities and 50th in North America. Yan, director of the city program at Simon Fraser University, bundled this implications up with this quote. This is financial fentanyl for our real estate. You found $1 billion, but it is probably magnified in the banking system with all the black money, gray money, and legitimate money cascading through local institutions, making a toxic sausage. So this is a national security issue, and also a national financial issue. And in my analysis for Global News, using Occam's razor, I lined up real estate prices drug deaths, and suspicious transactions. Correlation doesn't prove causation. But when you see three or four data sets lining up elegantly, it can make a hell of a case. And this is what I see in 2012, when Vancouver real estate prices graphs turned vertical, illicit fentanyl overdose death charts started to break upward, according to BC Coroner data. And the fentanyl fatalities rose exponentially from 2014. Money was flooding into real estate, and fentanyl was flooding downtown Eastside. The trends echoed neatly in BC casinos. GPEB data showed suspected drug money transactions going exponential from 2010. There were 64 million in suspicious cash transactions in Lottery Corp casinos in 2012. In 2015, the peak year for BC casino money laundering, there was 176 million in suspicious cash transactions, including 136 million in $20 bills. It was a record year for BC real estate, too. Vancouver area home prices surged by more than 30% in 2015 and almost 40% in some wealthy suburbs. In 2015, it was estimated that U.S. $1 trillion escaped China illicitly more than ever before. Underground narco-banks had to be churning out at record volumes to facilitate the cross-border financial transfers. And in a microcosm of this dirty money supernova, the River Rock VIP room accepted $13.5 million, excuse me, $13.5 million in $20 bills in July of 2015, which triggered a historic GPEB audit. That brings us back to Paul King Jen and Silver International. Our police money laundering study story summed it up like this. As the drug kingpins of Vancouver have raked in profits and the city's real estate prices have surged, the fentanyl crisis has spread from its epicenter among addicts in Vancouver Vancouver's impoverished downtown Eastside to communities across the country, leaving behind a devastating body count. It's a pretty bleak assessment. But as the law enforcement source that helped me document the hierarchy of e-pirate targets said, the mansions studied by the RCMP in Shaughnessy were funded by fentanyl deaths in downtown Eastside. It's a neat circle. Welfare Wednesday spending, 
ultimately enriches those fueling the affordability crisis, he told me. It's that simple. Deaths at Maine and Hastings. Mansions in Shaughnessy and West Vancouver. In December of 2018, after Global News published Fentanyl Making a Killing, there was an increasing groundswell of support for BC money laundering inquiry. Among the influential advocates, the BC Government and Service Employees Union, with its 72,000 members, cited our Global News investigations to pressure the NDP government for an inquiry. And a few days after our RCMP mansion money laundering study piece ran, I got a text message from a source. It was one of the police whistleblowers who had stood in front of a steamroller of BC casino money laundering. You have an army of supporters, the text said. An inquiry has to be called. Okay, and that is the end of chapter 14, a very powerful, well-informed, and strong data-driven chapter. And Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos tycoons and CCP agents infiltrated the West. Please join me tomorrow at 7.20 p.m. for Chapter 15, Compromised Nodes, as we continue to finish Willful Blindness. Thank you for joining us here at uh, the Unsanctioned Citizen uh, for the summer reading for Unsanctioned Your Mind. Have a good evening. <laughs>